It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening. Brian Kilmeade Show. I hope you had a sensational weekend. We have a great roster of guests this hour. Mick Mulvaney at the bottom of the hour. I'll talk to him about the campaign, the administration, and so much more. And Rick Perry is uh, warming up at the bullpen right now. We have a lot to discuss with the former governor of Texas and former secretary of energy, uh, who is now in Texas and can tell us what's going on on the ground. Sadly, he's there. Uh, Texas is one of the states, one of the 17 that has to pause and maybe close up shop with some restaurants and bars. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This virus is not going to go away on its own. We have to stop it. And only we can do that by working together. We're all sick and tired of staying home. But you know what? The virus is not tired of making us sick. Uh, I'm sorry. We're not staying at home. There's got to be another way. That's Dr. Tom Frieden, a former CDC director. Coronavirus cases, 17 states to pause or reverse the reopening schedule as the number of virus patients rise, but the number of deaths doesn't in proportion. How do we fight COVID-19 and recover the economy simultaneously? Number two. When you start demonizing and stereotyping all law enforcement as evil and bad, you start putting targets on their backs. You start seeing them withdraw from some areas, and that creates a powder keg that's not good for the nation. No kidding. Uh, Senator Tim Scott knows that firsthand. Retreat and retire. That's what law enforcement is doing as they get blamed for the nationwide civil unrest from coast to coast. As this new in vogue trend of defunding police and occupying cities sweeps the nation, a horrible combination for law-abiding Americans, we will share the grim stats. Number one. The trend is obvious. The trend is moving towards Joe Biden when Joe Biden hasn't said a word. The president has to change course here. He needs to approach the American people in a different way than he's been approaching them recently. There's just no question that Chris Christie is right. Recalibrate quick. That's what the team, the Trump team must do if they plan on winning another election. Put the 2016 band back together. Get a 2020 game plan and things to accomplish list, at least out there, to get you through 2024. And fully understand the idol Joe Biden is winning, but it doesn't mean he will win. And uh, that's where we'll start. Uh, Governor, uh, Governor Rick Perry joins us now. Uh, the governor is kind enough to be, the, be one of my experts on the new season of What Made America Great as we look at Sam Houston, a two-part series. And Rick plays a big role in that as uh, that was his predecessor, not as the media predecessor, but the first governor and the first president of Texas. Governor, welcome back. Brian, good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not quite as old as Sam Houston, but uh, I was uh, – Really honored to be able to be a part of that program. I think it gives a great glimpse into uh, why Texas is different. Uh, you know, an, an independent nation there for uh, about a decade, and and uh, just a great story of uh, carving a uh, nation out of a wilderness. And today, I, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think one of the real leading uh, leading states in the nation, if not the number one, when it comes to job creation, what have you. 
notwithstanding all of the challenges that we have today with COVID-19, here's what I'll tell you. My bet is that uh, Texas will be the place where you see some of the real solutions to COVID-19. Hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later here in the program. Uh, no, no. First off, uh, Governor, i got to start with it right now. Uh, is shelter in place, is that the only answer? Shut down the bars, is that the only answer? Wash your hands, yeah, is that I, really I, the only answer? Absolutely. You know, it's smart to have personal responsibility. It's smart to, uh, to, to do everything that you can, uh, but you don't have to just shut down your economy to deal with this. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm pretty excited about some of the technology that I'm seeing. Uh, some of it, uh, you, you know, there are people that say, well, we're, we're just going to shelter in place until we get a vaccine. I don't think that's a good strategy. Uh, finding a vaccine is a smart thing to do. Hopefully we're moving quickly uh, and, and with great expedition uh, to do that. But there are some things that we can do to defeat this coronavirus that, you know, I've seen firsthand some, uh, some great data that's coming out. Uh, Manjur Harani uh, is a brilliant innovator down in Houston, Texas. He has uh, some technology that goes in the HVAC uh, the, the, uh, our, our heating and cooling, if you will, uh, that will kill the virus on contact. It uses both a superconducting material and a UV to kill this coronavirus. Now, think about putting that into place into our public schools and being able to get our kids uh, back into schools. As a matter of fact, the American Association of Pediatrics uh, said, I think as late as yesterday, it makes great and good sense, and they highly recommend we get our kids back into school uh, this fall. That type of technology, uh, this biodefense filter, it's been tested by the University of Houston Superconductivity uh, Center. It's been tested by the National Lab in Galveston. It's been tested by Texas A&M and the University of Texas. So the proof of concept is there. It's ready to go. I know it's been uh, it's been shown to the governor's office and, and, and the governor's staff here within the last 48 hours. So that's one of the technologies that's available. There's a technology in San Antonio called Xenex, X-E-N-E-X, that will kill coronavirus. It's a UVC type of a Xeon-based gas uh, ray that goes out and kills this coronavirus in a room. Uh, again, the technologies are there. I think the deployment of these technologies, longer term, you have um, adult stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells in, in phase three trials in Mexico that are one more step away from commercialization. And two of those trials right here in the United States, a company called Celltext that's showing great potential to be powerful protection against COVID-19. So I think we ought to be focused on what are some of these preventatives uh, that we can do. When you add to, if you heard Dr. Oz this a little bit earlier on the, on the TV on program talking about adding zinc to your uh, supplements as well as vitamin B3, I mean, there's some really good preventative things that people can do uh, that will give hope to Americans that you know what? It's not just go hide in your home and hide uh, away from this, but there are some things that can happen 
that are happening that are out there that are real time that we need to get focused on. And hopefully you'll see things like Manzer Harani's technology coming forward. You'll see Zenex maybe partnering up with them uh, with the UV side of this, with the mesenchymal stem cells that Celtex uh, is putting and, forward. And Governor, where do, we find, together. where do we find out what you're talking about? If people are hearing this and they're driving right now, they don't have a pen available, uh, where do they find out more about this cutting-edge technology? Well, obviously, you know, they can go to uh, 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 sites, uh, Internet sites, uh, for instance, and get some background on uh, uh, the, the Celtex. I mean, great stories there. Clay Walker who had multiple sclerosis, he's got a, uh, he's got a great story. Uh, the the Tech site, for instance, will will tell you know what, I'll what do they're is doing. I'll have Pete, uh, Pete will give you a call after. We'll put, I'll put it out, and I'll tweet out yeah. uh, the three different and, things. And we'll, okay. get you, and we'll get you some of the, uh, the background. Excellent. I mean, it's just some fascinating things with uh, uh, IVP, this, this company that's got the, uh, uh, the biodefense filter, and, and obviously Xenex, X-E-N-E-X. You can go to their website and see it right now. I mean, this, but that's where we need to be focused as a, um, uh, I, I think, as a country on what are the things that we can do to prevent this, to give people hope that there's some protection against this, other than just wearing a mask, washing your hands, putting sanitizer on, and going and hiding at home. All right. So in Texas, there's a story in the New York Times today that said that said Texas swaggered their way into their current situation where you guys have to pause and dial back when it comes to bars. And one thing they said, uh, Governor Abbott did not mandate the mask. In retrospect, was that an issue for Governor Perry? Well, not a uh, surprise to me that the New York Times would take a shot at Texas, uh, no matter how, uh, you know, you know, pitiful it might be, in my opinion. Uh, the, the, the point is, uh, the death rate in, in Texas is, is minuscule. Uh, we've had less than 2,400 people die from this in a population of 29 million. Uh, the, the point needs to be, uh, are we being thoughtful of how we're addressing this? And I, I, I think we are. Uh, the, the, I, I don't think that uh, we need to be uh, sheltering in place. I think, again, I go back to what are some of the preventative things that we can do? Can we uh, give people hope that they can get out of their homes, that we can go back to school? Especially seniors. Yes. Uh, Seniors need to get out. I want you to hear what Joaquin Castro said about the president and your governor. Cut 31. The people of Texas and other places, most of them made sacrifices to stay at home a lot of people lost their job. People got sick. Some people died. But the leaders like Donald Trump and Greg Abbott, unfortunately, squandered people's sacrifices. They didn't do their part. So our leaders have to do their part. And fellow Texans also have to be responsible. So you, do you feel he feels like... I have like- no idea what that means. I totally have no idea what that means. Uh, the, 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 the president is doing his part. Uh, Governor Abbott is doing his part. And the fact is, Americans are doing their part. Uh, in 1969, uh, we had a, uh, a pandemic. Uh, most people don't even remember. They remember a man going on the moon. They remember uh, Woodstock, but they don't remember Hong Kong flu, H3N2, that killed a million people worldwide. We're half of that death rate worldwide right now. 
a million, a hundred thousand plus people in the U.S. were killed. Um, we're going to have these pandemics. Do we need to be, you know, thoughtful? Do we need to be personally responsible? Do we need to do the things that you can do? You know, whether you, it's wearing a mask or washing your hands or uh, using sanitizer, socially distancing. Th- those are personal responsibility and things that, that make sense. But the idea that somehow or another uh, the president of the United States or the governor uh, of, of the state has blood on their hands, that's pretty pitiful talk coming from a person like Joaquin Castro. All right, let's talk about energy. Chesapeake Energy, uh, the shale gas drilling pioneer, has helped turn the shale, made it all a reality, and is now filed for bankruptcy. They got $9 billion in debt. They find it unsustainable. Uh, they say 200 separate oil and gas companies have filed for bankruptcy over the last few months. You're former Secretary of Energy. Why? Well, real challenges here in the oil and gas industry. When you think about, about when all of this got started right before COVID-19, you had the Russians and the Saudis uh, that basically started a trade war with each other. That had uh, concentric circles of influence going out. And we saw the oil and gas industry just throttled from the standpoint of an oversupply. The U.S. Uh, industry has become very efficient, being able to deliver a lot of, of, of product to the market. When you had that that trade war, or not trade war, but that uh, that energy war between the Russians and the Saudis and OPEC, then it had a really negative impact on the supply. When you came in with COVID nineteen and shut down economies, uh, no traveling, no air travel, no driving, the impact that that had on the market. It doesn't surprise me that you have now uh, a substantial number of companies that rely upon demand, rely upon being able to meet that demand uh, in the oil and gas industry. So it's going to be a difficult period of time as we get the economy back. It is going to be dependent upon America, the world, getting demand back for those uh, products that uh, the oil and gas industry makes. So, it, 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 yeah, it can lie. It's going to be a difficult period of time here. No question. So, uh, check out Fox Nation. What made America great? Uh, Two part series with Sam Houston. Indispensable portion of that is a man who knows him well and had to you know, live do the job that he did first. Uh, the former governor of Texas with the first governor of Texas. Uh, thanks so much, Governor. Appreciate it, and we'll talk to you on television tomorrow. Brian, God bless you, brother. Talk to you later. So long. You got it. And we'll put up those sites about those uh, cutting-edge technologies that could keep you safe, could keep you healthy. Coming up next, you, one 408 7669 Then Mick Mulvaney at the bottom of the hour, the former acting White House chief of staff, where the administration goes from here to fight the pandemic that just won't go away. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations 
or fund projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's trying to find ways to recoalesce this space. It is it's fractured in places that it cannot he cannot afford to have it fractured among seniors, among some core Republicans. He's dropped from 95% to 84%. You're seeing uh, suburban voters move off, independent voters move away. So to Joe's point uh, and to yours, that steady decline is a hemorrhaging uh, uh, that Donald Trump cannot afford. If he's losing, if he's competitive in Florida, where does he go after that? How does he then right. hold together the rest of the coalition? That's the internal discussion right now. Well, uh, the president of the United States, according to Politico, knows he's losing. My gut is he knows he's losing. Doesn't mean he's going to lose. But right now you have a collection of polls. I'm not a big poll guy, especially because, you know, so many people are – it's impossible to get a hold of them, number one. Who's on a, who's on a hardline phone? Who's on a cell phone? Uh, who's actually being polled? Who's telling the truth? But – uh, and especially they were so wrong last time. But uh, Trump won white voters by 18 points in 2016. That's down to five. Among whites without college degrees, he had a 37-point advantage over Hillary. It's down to 22. Trump had seniors by eight points. Biden now leads by five. So that's why Georgia, Arkansas, Texas in trouble. North Carolina in trouble. Doc is listening to WOKV in Jacksonville. Doc. Hey, Brian, I love exposing the CNN's propaganda and the lying liberal leaders. 
For right now, they're telling us there's a COVID spike in Texas, Florida, and Arizona. I want the patriots to pay attention. These are the same city, same states that Trump have uh, rallies scheduled in. Is, is that, are they trying to tell us COVID is... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. That smart, and a convention COVID is not that smart. <laughs> yeah, hello. Well, I know, and a convention uh, in Jacksonville, which they say two hundred physicians have signed a petition to not do the convention in Jacksonville. It could be just coincidence, but let's see them get a hold of it now, and then that they bring it down well, again. This is like riding a Bronco, and New York, who seems to be having a good time looking at other states, now it's coming right back. I'm, I'm saying that as somebody in New York. So all these states, this is this is going right through. I don't think anyone's controlling the virus. I would think this. If you're upset about people going to bars, you better be just upset about the 300 plus cities that hosted protests. Even over the weekend, there were pride uh, there were pride parades, even though they should have been canceled because of the COVID virus. Does anyone condemn them? No, because politically it's detrimental to condemn pride parades. But it's not good for the virus. It's great for the virus to flourish. Not good if you don't want it to. We talk about the administration, what they got to do to get it online, get it on track, and how it can fight this, and how the president can communicate this when we come back with Mick Mulvaney. Don't move. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. As a doctor, a scientist, an epidemiologist, I can tell you with 100% certainty that in most states where you're seeing an increase, it is a real increase. It is not more tests. It is more spread of the virus. And the one number to look at that's very important is the percent of tests that's positive. The number of cases, that can vary some because we're only diagnosing oh, 10, 20% of all cases. So the numbers you're seeing are just a reflection, a tip of the iceberg of even more spread. But where the numbers are increasing, you've got Arizona with nearly one out of four tests positive. And at the same time, you're increasing the number of tests. I can tell you for with absolute certainty, that's explosive spread of coronavirus. Tom Frieden used to run the CDC and says it's not more testing that's causing the rise in coronavirus in certain states like Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Joining us now is Mick Mulvaney, uh, former acting White House uh, chief of staff and OMB uh, director, now the U.S. special envoy to Northern Ireland. Mick, what's your reaction to the doctor's assessment on what's happening here? Um, I, I think it's accurate. Excuse me. From what I can tell, it's accurate. Um, but I, I, I continue to, to struggle, Brian, with, with, with this focus on the number of people with the disease, which is an important metric, but it, in my mind, is not the most important. I've, I've seen a couple of folks accurately uh, get to the heart of the matter, which is it's not the number of people with the disease. It's the number of people with the disease who need to get hospital care. And then you compare that to the capacity 
and your hospitals. Um, that if you can get the care that you need, it looks like this disease is dangerous, but not nearly as dangerous as we thought that it is. Where it really gets to be dangerous is if you can't get medical care. So if you end up in a circumstance where your healthcare systems are overwhelmed, that <clears throat> excuse me, that is an extraordinary problem. But if you've got enough hospital beds, that that's where I, I think we should be spending more more of our time and our attention is on whether or not we can handle the number of cases that we've got. And in many cases, you can. Obviously, now in Texas and Arizona, that's starting to change. But um, I, I just, I'm, I'm frustrated when all I see are these numbers about this coverage about the number of people with the disease, which really is the beginning of the discussion, not the end. Right. Uh, Mick Mulvaney with us. Mick, uh, Governor Cuomo, sometimes critic, sometimes supporter, uh, was on Meet the Press yesterday, gloating, in my view, on the fact that numbers are down in New York. Cut 32. Look, if you listen to what the secretary said, if you listen to what the president says, what they said at the White House briefing, they're saying what they said three months ago. Uh, They're basically in denial about the problem. They don't want to tell the American people the truth. Uh, And they don't want to have any federal uh, response except supporting the state, supporting the state. So I heard that and I understood where they were. Uh, Do you think that's uh, effective that the president... (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, Governor Cuomo is Governor Cuomo, right? He's not a big fan of the president. Um, and I did notice, for example, that uh, he just, you know, th- these governors will come out and say, you know, they want more federal control or, or direction, and then they'll not take the federal control or direction when it comes. And the, the best example I've got is this recent um, quarantine on folks from, for example, my part of the country that, you know, you can't go to New York or New Jersey supposedly, um, where the CDC at the federal level said there was no evidence, no evidence that that was effective in any manner whatsoever. So the, I think the governor's trying to have it both ways. If, if the federal government is, is telling what he wants to hear, he likes federal advice. If he doesn't, he, he, he wants the states the, uh, to have the ability to go their own way. Um, look, let's give, let's give credit where credit is due. I think New York um, is getting the message out on how to spread the control of the disease. Other states are doing less good job at it, you know, about wearing masks and so forth. Um, there was a piece uh, right as listening to the to the show during the transition about the new evidence on uh, on asymptomatic transmission. Um, so that that word is getting out there. But uh, listen, the, the, the Cuomo doesn't like the president. And uh, that's obvious uh, when you listen to him talk. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes he seems to like him. But he liked him when the ship came in. He liked him when they built up the Javits Center. Uh, he liked him when he was begging for more money to build a tunnel. Uh, from New Jersey, uh, but he seems to have gone by the boards. Uh, let's talk a little about this Russia story in the New York Times that came out over the weekend. Uh, interrogations of captured militants uh, say that they were being paid by the Russians to, to assassinate Americans in Afghanistan. The problem is that we cannot find uh, anybody that confirmed it was in the presidential daily brief. You might have been there, Mick, during this time. We can't find anyone that confirmed that the president was briefed on that uh, orally. And we have the acting national director of intelligence, Rick Grinnell, saying it shouldn't have risen to his level. They rose to his level. Um, he says it was never taking at something that that was verifiable. What, what do you hear? What do you remember? Yeah, well, <clears throat> to your first point, uh, you probably shouldn't find anybody who would ever confirm what was in the presidential daily briefing because they're not supposed to talk about it. Um, so it, it, to, to that extent, you're, you're, you're looking for something that you shouldn't be able to find. Perhaps John Bolton, who's been very quick to sort of disclose other stuff, might be able to uh, to talk about that. But generally speaking, you, you you're not going to get folks say yes, this was in it. 
um, or, or that wasn't in it or that wasn't it. It's just we, we don't talk about that kind of thing. Now, that being said, um, uh, I was uh, surprised by the news stories this weekend um, and would be curious to know um, who thinks it was in the presidential daily briefing. Interesting. Uh, well, you talked about John Bolton. He weighed in on this. Cut 41. What would motivate the president to do that? Because it looks bad if Russians are paying to kill Americans and we're not doing anything about it. So what is the presidential reaction? It's to say, it's not my responsibility. Nobody told me about it. Uh, and, and therefore, to, to duck uh, any complaints that he hasn't acted effectively. This is part of the problem with Trump uh, President Trump's decision-making in the national security space. Uh, it's just unconnected to the, to the reality he's dealing with. It's about his personal position. Your reaction? Yeah, wow. Um, it's been really frustrating to see. Uh, it was frustrating to see John uh, re- release the book in the first place, write the book in the first place. It's a, a betrayal of the highest order. I think you've even seen some Democrat folks um, who served in previous administrations come out and say how surprised they were that someone who was that high up and that close to the president um, would write a book um, like this uh, while the president's still in office. Um, it's it's going to be damaging to the presidency in, in ways that uh, I think not a lot of folks have considered yet. But clearly over the course of the last two or three weeks as the book has come out, John has sort of increased his level of vitriol to the president. I guess he thinks that that might help him sell books. Um, but I don't even think John Bolton three weeks ago would have said what he just said in that clip. Um, if John really felt that strongly, and he's pretending, I guess, to feel strongly about it now, one has to wonder you know, why he didn't do or say more um, when he and I were in the office. John Bolton never complained to me a single time, not once, uh, about the president of the United States. And John Bolton worked for me uh, in the hierarchy of, of the West Wing. Uh, NSA works for the chief of staff, and John never complained to me a single time. So uh, I, I take all of this with sort of a a jaundiced eye as I see someone trying to sell a book and say things bad about the president when he didn't say anything, not a word, uh, when he was actually at work on the job and uh, supposed to be serving the American people and the president. Yeah, you know what? I always thought John Bolton would be like Mike Pompeo. Yeah, he differs from the president, especially on foreign policy when Mike Pompeo was in Congress. But he understood who the president was and tried to support the decisions and shape the decisions the best he can, offer his opinion, and then move on. I'm sure a Mike Pompeo administration would look different than President Trump, but he's fully aware that it's Trump's show. And he, and he seems to be thriving in his position. I'm totally shocked it ended up like this. Meanwhile, you and I have talked about this before, Brian, because yeah. uh, I had the same attitude about spending. Okay, the president and I would not agree on spending. A, a Mulvaney administration would look different on spending than a Trump administration. But you hit the nail on the head, which is the role of, of the advisors, policy advisors like Mike Pompeo, like John Bolton, like the director of the Office of Management Budget that I served in for three years, is to shape the policy or to try and shape the policy. But the president makes the final decision. And then what you do after you contribute to that policymaking process is you go out and you back the president. And if you can't, you leave. Uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what a classy um, uh, public servant would do. You would not stay for the purpose of undermining the president's decisions because you don't like it and it looks different than what your administration would look like. No one elected John Bolton. John Bolton knows that or did, doesn't know that. No one elected Mike Pompeo, but he knows it. Um, so your distinction between the two is excellent. Mike does excellent work. He's in there giving the president his opinion, trying to shape policy. The end of the day, the president makes the decision, and then we go with that. Um, and that is, that's the distinction between someone like Mike Pompeo and someone like John Bolton. 
So, Mick, I know you, I'm not sure what you're able to do and talk when it comes to the campaign, but I could talk to you generally about it and see the best you can answer this. Someone like Chris Christie, for example, I think he's been a very fair arbiter. Um, he obviously would go on all these shows. He's the only one who supports the president usually, but not blindly. Here's what he said about the current polls and where the president stands four months from Election Day. Cut one. There's no question that while these national polls are less significant um, in terms of the raw numbers, the trend is obvious. The trend is moving towards Joe Biden when Joe Biden hasn't said a word. Joe Biden's hiding in the basement, not saying anything. No, uh, no discredit to the vice president. If you're winning without doing anything, why do anything? Um, the president has to change course here, both in terms of the substance and answering that question much better than he did with Sean Hannity in terms of what he wants to do in a second term. Um, and secondly, he needs to approach the American people in a different way than he's been approaching them recently. And what people might not know is that he really did not answer clearly what he would do in the next four years. Uh, he seemed to be grasping for a mission. And it seems as though the campaign is not clear. Uh, it's clear that a lot of people who are on the inside feel on the outside now. And they feel as though their voices aren't being heard and that the administration is really scrambling uh, for a message. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think Chris is, I think Governor Christie's criticism there is is accurate. I would uh, I, I disagree subtly on one component of it when he said that people are moving to Joe Biden. I don't think that's true. I think they're moving away from Donald Trump. And those, that, that's an important distinction um, that I, I don't think Biden is doing much of anything. I think what you're seeing in the national polls, which Chris is right, they're not, they're not that important, but they do show general trends, um, is that folks are, are voicing their displeasure with the way the president has, uh, has uh, handled um, COVID and the Black Lives Matter uh, riots and, and, and uprisings in the last couple of weeks, and that that filters through and people are, are telling pollsters they won't support Donald Trump in order to express their frustration. Does I think that those folks cannot come back into the fold? Absolutely not. Because at the end of the day, people should remember, and the campaign, the Trump campaign needs to remind people, it's a binary choice. It is not a it's not a referendum on Donald Trump. It's not a popularity contest. Do you like Donald Trump or not? If it is, the president's going to face challenges because I've always told him the only person that can beat Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Joe Biden cannot beat Donald Trump. Only Donald Trump can. Um, and the, mo the more the campaign can define this as a choice between us and them, but between Trump and Biden, the better off they're going to do. What is that? How does that translate in the real world? that Donald Trump is going to be better at putting the country back together than Joe Biden would be. I think that's the message that, that needs to get out. But I, I, do think there's, I do think there's frustration amongst the base uh, with the president right now. And, uh, but I, I do not think that uh, I dinner last night with a reporter who said the election was over, and I just laughed. I said, you haven't been around very long. This is a long way off. Um, and it is a long way off. So there's a lot to be done in the campaign, um, and I'm absolutely comfortable they can make the change. The question is, will they? That's, you know, that's, that remains to be seen. Well, toss-ups are now in Georgia and Texas, according to some polls. Let's say North Carolina, uh, the president's losing. In Florida, he's losing. Um, he's losing in every battleground state, and he's losing in some states that he, he won. And one key one would be Arizona, uh, where he's trailing, and the Senate seat's in jeopardy. So the thing that the president, to me, has going for him is this sense of history, the, the, uh, the, the revulsion people see about all these statues coming down, and the law and order, and the way the uh, police have been vilified. And the, the, and the chaos in the streets of Minneapolis, New York, Chicago, uh, and Atlanta. 
I mean, that's really what President Trump is about, law and order, and it, we're losing that right now. Yeah, but no, keep in mind, what's the flip side of that, which is no one has asked and Joe Biden has not been required to, to answer the question. You know, what is what is your what are your goals? What would you do about this, Joe? What would you do about the Black Lives Matter movement? How would you fix this, Joe? How would you handle the defund the police movement? Do you support that? Because many people in your party do No, He has not been forced no. to ask those questions because he's been allowed to stay in his basement. No one has benefited more from the coronavirus crisis than Joe Biden. Um, and to the extent the campaign can drive the, 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 the narrative in exactly. that direction. Um, uh, which is, you know, you may, you may not like the President Trump's answers on a second term, and they do need to get better with that. I did see the Hannity interview, but you don't even know what Joe Biden's answer is because no one's no one's forced him to answer that question yet, and the campaign needs to do that. Uh, Mick, the political story today said the president knows he's told friends he knows he's losing. Do you think he knows he's losing? Well, I think the president's very self-aware. Uh, I don't think the president's naive at all about politics. Um, I mean, face it, no one who runs for president and wins, uh, especially when you're not expected to, like he uh, was not expected to, can, it will be naive about politics. Uh, so I think he's very aware of what's going on. He gets a sense. Uh, again, he, he, he will look at those national polls, and I think he, he, looks, I think he looks at them the same way that, that most sophisticated politicians do, which is nah, they're, not really, they're not really indicative of what the result is going to look like, but they, are a, they could be a good barometer of where the temperature is in the country right now. And the temperature is that folks are not happy with Donald Trump. And I think he gets that. So uh, he's a good politician. Um, they got a decent operation. They really do. I was always impressed with the folks who ran the campaign. Um, and um, I see stuff now that the campaign puts out, and it is the right, it's the right message. It's that, 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 that choosing between Trump and Biden. So if it can filter up uh, and start to, to – the president starts to drive that narrative nationally, um, I think there's a really good chance they turn things around. Well, I just think that with just Brad Parscale and Jared, they don't. They got to get the band back together to a degree uh, and make it more of a team effort. Uh, Brad has never run a campaign himself. He's a brilliant guy at digital, it seems. But uh, and Jared was one of many. Uh, but he, everyone seems to be locked out on the outside now. Who want the best? Who want the president to win almost as much as he does? Yeah, I, I, again, my my experience with that is, is the exact opposite. I've been getting good information from the campaign and stuff. So it, you may be you may have sources other than me, and I'm not saying you don't, but I, I've not got the feeling that uh, that uh, I've been locked out. So uh, I, I, that's all I can say from my, my own perspective on this. Because you would know if you were locked out. Lastly, you said the president did not do a good job hiring. Yeah, I, I think, listen, I, I think the, the facts bear that out. I mean, uh, Jeff Sessions was not a good hire. Rex Tillerson was not a good hire. Uh, Mattis was not a good hire. John Kelly was a good hire at DHS, but a bad hire at chief of staff. Um, I think the president um, thought he would like folks like generals a lot more than he did. Um, I think that he thought they would be more willing to sort of to go along with his freewheeling style. The president does not run a, a, a militaristic structure in his operation. That's not the kind of guy he is. He's a gotcha. free thinking, freewheeling kind of guy. And it's tough for folks uh, who have not been raised in that type of environment yep. to, to adjust to it. Pompeo has. I have. Stephen Mnuchin has. Um, so there's a lot of good members of the cabinet, but I think they did make some mistakes on hiring, and I've told the president that. Mick, uh, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for your bluntness. Right to the point. Mick Mulvaney, great job. Thanks, Brian. Back in a moment. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, Joe, you're listening uh, in Los Angeles. Joe, what do you think about the polls? Brian, uh, everybody talks about these polls as if they're gospel. But in my opinion, they're garbage because they never mentioned the sample group. They never mentioned how many people were polled. They never mentioned the the polling questions. And I don't care which. What do you think? So, Joe, tell me what Joe, you do. What do you think? Excuse me. What do you think? Who's winning? Um, and, you know, I'm in liberal Los Angeles, Brian, and it, it so happens that my work takes me to meet a lot of people. And I'm telling you, man, I am, I meet people all day long that are saying, Todd, I'm, I'm trying to be quiet, but I have a, I'm a Trump supporter. Thanks, Joe. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by former South Carolina Senator Jim DeBan. He used to run things uh, for the American Enterprise Institute. He's going to be with, the, excuse me, the Heritage Foundation. He'll be with us shortly. Talk about the direction of the party and the direction of the president's campaign. Uh, and we'll be taking your calls, 1-866-408-7669. Or you can write me, briankilmeade.com. We can get through your emails. Uh, we have Michael Goodwin standing by. So let me get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This virus is not going to go away on its own. We have to stop it, and only we can do that by working together. We're all sick and tired of staying home, but you know what? The virus is not tired of making us sick. Okay, there we go. Uh, That is... Uh, former CDC Director Tom Frieden. Coronavirus causes 17 states to pause or reverse the reopening schedule as the number of virus patients rise. How do we fight COVID-19 and recover the economy? We'll examine. Number two. When you start demonizing and stereotyping all law enforcement as evil and bad, you start putting targets on their backs. You start seeing them withdraw from some areas, and that creates a powder keg that's not good for the nation. Like Chicago and Baltimore, remember that? Senator Tim Scott does retreat and retire. That's what law enforcement is doing as they get blamed for the nationwide civil unrest from coast to coast. As this new in-vogue trend of defunding police, occupying cities, sweeps the nation. A horrible combination for law-abiding Americans. We will share the grim stats. Number one. The trend is obvious. The trend is moving towards Joe Biden when Joe Biden hasn't said a word. The president has to change course here. He needs to approach the American people in a different way than he's been approaching them recently. Recalibrate quick. This is what the Trump team must do if they plan to win another election. Put 2016, put the 2016 band back together. Get a 2020 game plan and things to accomplish list through 2024 and fully understand an idol Joe Biden is winning, but it doesn't mean he will win. 
And I'll be bringing Michael Goodwin to weigh in that. He's a just the facts guy, voted for Barack Obama in 2008, and had a chance to really watch President Trump's administration up close and personal. Michael's access is as good as anyone's. Michael, do you agree with that? The president's losing, Biden's winning, but it doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't mean he's going to win? Yes, I think that's exactly right, Brian. I, um, the, the, the polls, some of them may be rigged uh, to come out with a certain result, but uh, when you take them as a whole, you see a clear pattern. And I think the pattern is that nationally, Joe Biden has a significant lead, maybe six, eight, ten points, somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, most most important in a number of the swing states. Uh, if he were to win sort of any two of the bigger swing states, such as Florida or Ohio, and or Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, it would be very difficult for the president to achieve the electoral college majority. So it does seem right now uh, that Joe Biden has the momentum, which to hear yourself say that is shocking because he's a stationary figure. He's essentially stuck in his basement, says very little. Um, as you were talking about the, the, the upheaval around the country, uh, defund the police, uh, Biden really hasn't said anything about those things. We can assume that, by and large, that is a movement almost exclusively in the most radical from the left. The left is part of the Democratic Party. Uh, and so is, is America going to give Joe Biden the presidency, even as his party incorporates, you know, all of the madness going on? And is it going to say to those people, yes, take the power? Take the power of the government. Do with it what you will. You want to tear down the statues. You want to uh, flood the country with illegal immigrants. Uh, you want to bankrupt uh, small businesses and, and, and tax people to death. Yes, by, go right ahead. So it's impossible to believe that's going to happen. But this is where we are right now. And I agree with Chris Christie uh, that the president needs to do something different. He needs to get the disaffected uh, Trump supporters and the undecided voters. He needs to give them another reason to come back to him. He needs to say something, do something. And not just this is not a one day thing. This is what remains for him to do in the next four and a half months is give them a, a reason to give him a second look, because right now they seem pretty dead set against him. And yes, he, he cannot he cannot count on Biden and the Democrats to screw it up. They might, but he's going to have to win it more than they are going to have to lose it. There's no question that while these national polls are less significant um, in terms of the raw numbers, the trend is obvious. The trend is moving towards Joe Biden when Joe Biden hasn't said a word. Joe Biden's hiding in the basement and not saying anything. No, uh, no discredit to the vice president. If you're winning without doing anything, why do anything? Um, the president has to change course here, both in terms of the substance and answering that question much better than he did with Sean Hannity in terms of what he wants to do in a second term. Um, and secondly, he needs to approach the American people in a different way than he's been approaching them recently. Don't look back. Uh, don't complain. Let's just look forward and tell us what you're going to do. We've all been there. We know about it. Uh, so you got to look forward. 
the one area in which I think the president's got a way, uh, he's got a lot of authenticity, is law and order and, and defense of law enforcement. While I think there's a lot to the fact that there could be some alterations and improvement and law enforcement reform, I'm all for it. And so is the president through his executive orders. If you look at what's happening, it's playing to the president's strength and actually America's weakness. Baltimore City Council approved a $22.4 million budget cut for their police department. Portland, $15 million cut. Philadelphia canceled a $19 million increase. In Seattle, they cut 10% of the total budget. There was hundreds of people waiting outside City Hall. Do you know what they're doing, Michael? They are protesting and sitting in and occupying because they want a billion dollars cut from the NYPD. The president, I mean, for one thing, as an American, uh, this really makes me sick. And as a, if I, I'm a presidential candidate like Trump, this is an opportunity to show your difference and call Biden out. But, you know, Brian, Brian as you go through that list, and each one of those incidents is, is appalling, uh, then why is Donald Trump still losing? I mean, all of that is true, right? So, so you have this incredible thing that's going on in the country. The president clearly is and wants to be seen as the law and order president. He's appealing to the silent majority. Why is it not working? And I think that's what the White House needs to ask itself. And the set of facts in the country today, the president should be ahead by 10 points, not behind. He should be sweeping all the swing states. Why is he not? And I think that is the question that that the Trump family and the Trump White House needs to ask itself. And I and I do have some confidence that they are that that they are taking this seriously, that the president knows this is this is not a game, that this is a serious moment and that he has to win back. I think the problem is they don't know how to do it. Uh, The president himself in many ways, is the problem. His tweets, uh, his feuding, endless feuds. Every day you pick up a newspaper or read a website or go on television, it is, there's president blasts, president rips. He's always fighting with somebody. And whether it's John Bolton, uh, General Mattis, uh, others, Joe Scarborough, what is the point of it all? It feels like a personal feud. It doesn't feel like it's for the good of the country. It feels like he's entangled himself in these feuds. And it does nobody any good. So what if Joe Scarborough mocks you? Who cares? Who watches Joe Scarborough? Certainly none of your supporters are not undecided voters. Nobody cares about Joe Scarborough. Zero. That's right. But the president does. And that's the problem. He, he, he has such thin skin when it comes to criticism that he's got to win every fight. But, and as I wrote recently, he can win the battles and lose the war. And the war is re-election. I mean, this is an enormously consequential election, given what Democrats now stand for and who their supporters are and what those supporters are doing in the streets of the cities of, of America. The president cannot be selfish about these things. He has to let the little things go. And he's shown it before, September 1st until November, even through Billy Bush, 
He was the most disciplined person in America. He kept to two or three messages on the outworked Hillary Clinton. And if it wasn't for the Access Hollywood tape, I believe that he might have won. It wouldn't have been obvious even in the polls going into Election Day. But Access Hollywood, the bottom comes out. He still goes in debates. He was able to rehab enough to win all those close states. We don't need to go over what happened in 2016 again. He's finally getting credit for the victory. Did you notice Democrats are saying, look out, he won last time? It took them three (laughs) years to admit that he actually won this election. But you write Sunday uh, about New York. And I know we're national, but we're located in New York and so many focuses here. You say the mayor's performance is actually growing worse by the day. I didn't think it was possible. But when you spend your afternoon painting Black Lives Matter in the street while your crime is running rampant, the deficit is going through the roof and Occupy New York on your behest is growing in numbers taking up the city, you have to wonder what planet you're on. But that's the case. Yes, New York um, has probably the worst mayor in its history at a crucial moment in its history. And I recount uh, some some of the past that, you know, Brian, when, when crime accelerated in New York uh, in the 1960s, it started. Um, it really was a 30-year period, nearly, a 30, nearly three decades of rising crime and then plateauing at devastating levels to the city, to the economy, uh, and, and to just the, the, the health of children. Uh, and then when that tide was reversed, it started with Rudy Giuliani in 1994. It continued under Michael Bloomberg. That took 20 years. So 30 years up, 20 years down, we're pretty much we, we were pretty much where we were uh, back in the back in the good old early 60s. Instead, now what we have is this incredible rise again, 25 percent increase in murders this year. So this is not a blip. This is now the pattern. The pattern is reversing itself before our eyes. And that is what is happening in New York now. I mean, we are becoming like Chicago in the sense of shootings through the night. And, of course, most of the people who are committing these crimes have have either wanted to in the past or, but didn't do it because the police were there, or they did it in the past, they were locked up, and now we've turned them all loose. So you really have the worst of all situations, and you have a mayor who is disengaged to the point of uh, being just simply lazy. I mean, he just doesn't do anything. You know, before there were there were sign, there were talk about him going to the gym at 11 a.m., uh, holding court uh, in his house. He didn't go to City Hall for weeks on end. He'll go to a cafe and somebody will call him and the commissioners will call him. He just doesn't care. It's all politics to him. So now he's turned against the police, of course, because that's what the, the ragamuffins in the street want him to do. So now he's just following the headlines. You mean what his wife and daughter want him to do? Yes, yes. I mean, he has no concern about the taxpayers, about the future of the city, about the health of the schools. He can't be bothered to make decisions. He can't be bothered to, you know, to, to help the restaurants reopen, to figure out a plan for schools in the fall. And I'll tell you, Brian, if the schools do not open in New York City in the fall, you are going to see an exodus of people from this city. You know, you'll put up with a lot. 
You're put up with all kinds of issues. But if you feel your children are not safe and they are not being educated and well cared for, you're going to go somewhere else. And there's lots of evidence that people are already doing that because they have so little faith in de Blasio's efforts that they see him just fail, 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 and then blame it on somebody else and not take responsibility and, the and prob- do nothing about it. And the problem is you have a governor here who loves taking credit and doesn't take any responsibility. Oh, yes. they better get it together in New York. Well, those nursing homes better pick up the pace. Those, you know, those hospitals better find some room. The federal government better bail me out. I better... Um, wait a second. Will anyone ever call Governor Cuomo out and just tell me what you did instead of blaming others and acting like nothing's your fault? We don't do pandemics. Well, you know what? The NYPD didn't do terrorism. So you know what they did? They sent agents to Jordan and to Israel and to Egypt and they found out what was going on with Al-Qaeda after 9-11. And they stayed a step ahead of it. And that's what, that's what cities do. They, they do whatever it takes. And that's what they used to do. But Governor Cuomo goes to his tanning bed and right to television. I don't know how he's getting a pass. But thanks so much, Mike. Always do a great column. You always get me going. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 We're going to come back with you. And then at the bottom of the hour, Senator Jim DeMint. Are Republicans getting nervous about this election? About the Senate? We'll see. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's a mistake politically to count Donald Trump out. Uh, So many of us did that back in 2016. There is still a path, if you look at the economy, if there's some kind of rebound where he could build on a base to try to put together uh, some kind of uh, election victory. Uh, That was David Gregory who went on to say it seems unlikely. Uh, But I would say this. It's all up to him. It really is. When John Kerry was going against uh, George Bush, they said, well, he's got a military background. He's got a lot of experiences on the Foreign Policy Committee. Uh, Could he do it? You know, when it was... Uh, you know, was Mitt Romney, they said, you know, wait, is he, he ran a business and the president, uh, Obama, had no experience. He could be a real alternative. It was subtle. This will not be subtle. Nicholas, listen on WABC in New Jersey. Nicholas. Hey, Brian, I just wanted to I made an observation. I really think this is my real feeling that Trump should step aside, say he did enough in one term. Let maybe Pence run with Condoleezza Rice. It's almost like he doesn't want to win. All Trump had to say was the right to peaceful protest is guaranteed in the Constitution, but we won't tolerate lawlessness. Instead, he tweets when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And while he may have a solid 40 percent support that he won't lose, when he does that, he loses the middle 10 percent that he needs to win. Nicholas, there's nothing wrong with what you just said. But it's always been a part of the Trump process. It's still it's still achievable for him to do it. For him to step aside would be literally giving everything to Joe Biden. Mike Pence will not win. John, WDBO, real quick in Florida. John. Hello? What's on your mind, John? Hi, yes. I was calling into the caller that, uh, that uh, you guys, or the guy you were speaking with before, uh, trying to understand why Trump was 
so behind and he's done all yep. these things. Go ahead. Because hey, my my thought about this, this is my thought about it. You're not getting it. You, you Republicans or the people in office, they're just not getting it. This has nothing to do with what he's done in this country. This is where we've been sugarcoating it all along. This is a black and white issue. And it, it, that's what it's come to. It's a black and white issue. You see the people tearing the statues down and having civil unrest in cities. And they're, they're saying, why would Trump be losing? He's doing all these great things. No, he's not addressing the real problem here. Back in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. When you start demonizing and stereotyping all law enforcement as evil and bad, you start putting targets on their backs. You start seeing them withdraw from some areas, and that creates a powder keg that's not good for the nation. And so the demonizing of law enforcement is not a part of my bill because I don't want law enforcement to demonize African-Americans. We have to be on the same page. That is uh, Senator Tim Scott trying the best he can to do law enforcement reform, not getting any cooperation from all but uh, three Democrats. So it dies here unless something can be reinvigorated uh, this week. And should it be? Uh, right now, I'll tell you what, the only thing being reinvigorated and the one thing been underlined is the defunding of police. I was telling you before, there's an Occupy City Hall movement. Uh, there's a lack of cooperation in the NYPD with uh, law enforcement in terms of defunding. Their defunding is going on in Minneapolis. It's going on in Portland. It's going on in Atlanta. Uh, and it's pushed to take a billion dollars out of the New York police budget. Incredible. And I'll get to your calls in just a moment. My privilege to bring in former South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint. He is now chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute and a best-selling author. His book is Saving America from Socialism, How to Stop Progressive Attacks on Freedom. Senator, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. And there certainly are a lot of progressive attacks, and you, you've talked about them a lot, but a lot going on to talk about right now. Is these, uh, the, the whole defunding of police, is that part of the socialism movement? How does that fit in? It sure is. I mean, creating chaos and anarchy and crises is how folks push people to government. Uh, and even though police are part of government, this whole idea of destabilizing the society is a way that socialists and, and tyrants take more control. And we certainly have seen that this year, not just with the police but with the coronavirus, of the, we've really seen what the left will do if, if, they, if they take the power. Uh, and it, it's very worrisome. I've been writing about it and warning about it for years. But the reason I released uh, Saving America from Socialism now is because these things are actually happening on our watch. Well, when it comes to uh, the coronavirus, have you noticed a difference between the way Democrats uh, run their states and Republicans run theirs? Because now Democrats are saying, look at the problems the red states are having in Arizona and Texas, uh, as well as uh, Florida. Well, the red states have handled it the way they should. In fact, I think the lockdowns were, were probably um, 
a bad idea in the first place. We, we can't keep people from getting sick. I think the idea of leveling the curve uh, and making sure our health care system wasn't overwhelmed was a good idea. But we can't keep people from getting sick. And what you see now, Brian, is younger people are getting it. A lot of doctors say that it's a good thing for more people to develop immunity. Uh, the, the problem all along has been with older people who have other uh, serious health conditions. Over 80 percent of those who died uh, have actually been in nursing care. So for young working Americans, um, it's time to get back to work and get back to normalcy. And we have to do everything we can to protect those who are most vulnerable. Well, Tom Frieden feels differently. Uh, He talked about the COVID-19 crisis. He used to run the CDC. Cut 27. There's no doubt we're doing more testing. Our hospitals are better prepared. But there's also no doubt that the virus has the upper hand. This virus is not going to go away on its own. We have to stop it. And only we can do that by working together. We're all sick and tired of staying home. But you know what? The virus is not tired of making us sick. And what we're seeing, particularly in southern states, but in most parts of the U.S., is the virus increasing, and in some states, increasing explosively. But I don't understand what he wants us to do. We cannot sit home. It destroys the country. It destroys the individual. We, we can't. And, and if we have, I mean, the media have tried to create this second wave long before it, it showed its head. But as, if you look at the, the data, and, and I don't know, the media is very careful about us not getting the data. The younger people are getting it. They're not getting very sick. Hospitalizations are going up some, but the death rate is going down because it's more affecting young people. Now, I'm not saying there's not risk, but we cannot eliminate risk, Brian. And what we've seen for the last several months is in the name of doing something for our own good, the government at the state and federal and local level have taken our basic rights away. And we can't afford to print enough money to support an idle America. So we have to take our chances and get back to work and produce again. Uh, and I think we've learned a lot about how, how to keep people safer. But closing the government back down uh, or closing the country back down is, is going to cause right. much bigger problems than we have with this virus. Uh, I just want to give, before I cut more into the socialism part of our conversation, that might be fine. And, Senator, I agree with you. But if you're a politician and you need the senior vote and you legitimately care about seniors, and I know you do, they know they're the most vulnerable. They know that they're, most of them are the ones dying, paying the price. They feel as though they're being abandoned by the president that they gave the most votes to. How do you, how do you gil, uh, have the president give that, release, that, release that sentiment of abandonment? Show them you care, but at the same time stand the country back up and tell them to fight. Well, no, it's a great point, Brian. It's it's really hard for him to get a message to the American people because the media will not carry what he says. So he's doing it through Twitter, and I think he's you know had his back against the wall and uh, and lost a little bit of his characteristic mojo. And uh, he he needs to take charge of this again, not only with coronavirus but with the the violence. I mean, he's limited to what he can do at the state level for both. But he needs to have the right rhetoric that we're going to take care of, of seniors. We're going to and he's they've released a lot of great guidelines and the, the media has completely ignored it that will help keep seniors and young people safer. So um, while there is a spike in cases, a lot of that is attributed to more testing. Uh, a lot of it's attributed to younger people now getting it. 
Uh, so we, we can't eliminate all risk, Brian. We've got to be careful. We've got to get back to work, and we've got to get back to normalcy. Otherwise, we're going to be looking at major economic uh, catastrophe and just a breakdown of our way of life. Well, one thing that's happening is Black Lives Matter is now the hottest organization in the country. Everyone's wearing the hats, the shirts. More white people are protesting for Black Lives Matter than black people, the unofficial polls show. One of the leaders is a guy named Hawk Newsom. He was on with Chris Wallace yesterday of Black Lives Matter. Listen to what he said about crime and health. Cut 16. I'm not encouraging people to go out and hurt other people. That's that's not what I'm promoting. What I'm talking about is systemic inequality. What I'm talking about is America treating crime as 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 something that needs to be handled with policing instead of defunding the police and looking at crime from the perspective that it's a health crisis. Do you think we'd be better off if we treated crime like a health crisis? I don't think doctors and nurses and social workers are going to uh, fix the crime problem. And there's not anybody that I know who's been in law enforcement uh, for uh, a lifetime that would agree with that. We all know that would lead to anarchy. And I, I am convinced that a large majority of black Americans do not want to defund police. How did they uh, uh, how could Republicans start getting a piece of the earning a piece of the African-American vote? Well, I think they were actually doing that before the virus. So Trump the approval among blacks had, had gone way up. That doesn't always translate into votes, but he got more African-American votes than, than Mitt Romney did. I think his idea, what, you, what do you have to lose, was starting to take hold. And uh, folks just need to see uh, how the ideas of the Republicans can make their life better. School choice is one of the best uh, issues for Republicans to win black votes, but a lot of them are afraid because of teachers' unions and other criticism of actually going out and boldly talking about it. But a lot of us believe that's how Governor DeSantis was elected. Uh, he went out and talked about how more school choice could help minorities in his state. How nervous are Republicans right now by these polls where uh, the Senate was going to be hard to keep anyway? When you look at Colorado, when you look at Iowa, when you uh, look at uh, some other states, Arizona in particular, are they getting worried about about what's happening in November? Well, I think so. No one knows what's happening. But I I think uh, once Trump regains his stride, I think once it's more of a direct comparison with Joe Biden, I believe you're going to see Trump uh, win uh, by a good bit. I won't say a landslide at this point, but right now it's just Trump against Trump. And everyone uh, in the media, or at least a lot of them, are just putting negative things out every day. But once we have a debate or two, once the the campaign commercials expose uh, Joe Biden's uh, public life and what he really hasn't done, I think people are going to default back to Trump and and realize that he had the country on a good course and he can get us back there. All right. And real quick, how do you stop progressive attacks on freedom uh, politically, uh, socially? It's it's really both. There's a lot we can do as citizens and particularly at the state level to push for things like school choice. I happen to be a supporter of the 
convention of states uh, to get states active in pushing back against the federal government. Uh, but I do think the federalism idea of moving power out of Washington, but mostly, Brian, it's an engaged, informed citizenry that can protect us from socialism. The book is important because it helps people understand what it is and how to see it, because it's not what most people think. It's not what the young people who support socialism really don't know how it works and, and what damage is done in, in history. So I would just encourage people to read uh, Saving America from Socialism. Uh, it's a simple, uh, a simply written book so that people like me can understand it. Uh, but we need to know what the enemy is uh, or we won't understand the threat. Uh, Senator uh, Jim DeMint, thanks so much, Senator. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 When we come back, we're going to look at what President Trump has to do to win, which makes it uh, real simple. There are certain things happening right now in America that are playing to his strengths. We'll review that when we come back on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Celebrating 10 years. Wait, has it really been that long? As usual, you've made it all about yourself. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. A lot of people don't understand how the streets or the people feel. I have an in-depth knowledge of this. I live in the Bronx. I live amongst the people. So it's not like I'm sitting here pushing a button or anyone can push that button. But if people keep seeing these images of their babies, of their relatives, of, of, of black people being killed, they keep dealing with financial inequality and inequity and it reaches a point of frustration, then people lash out. This is a matter of inevitability that people will lash out because they're feeling like they're backed into a corner. Well, that's interesting. I have That's the type of thing I, I don't mind listening to and debating because I can't tell people how to feel. You can't tell me how to feel, but I'm very interested in what Hank Newsom has to say. When he says burn down the system, if you don't make change the system, I don't know what you're talking about, but I think you just threatened the country. Uh, and that's what the president tweeted out. But I thought he had a very intelligent conversation with Chris Wallace yesterday. A little circuitous, but Chris let him go. Uh, let him talk, in other words. Didn't interrupt him a bunch of times. He let him finish his thought. There wasn't much debate. Uh, so I'll do a little bit more to know, but I wanted to bring that into fray because when you want to fundamentally, this was about George Floyd and racial equity. Next thing you know, uh, a group of thugs, mostly white are burning down Rodeo Drive and destroying the city and mocking police. Rob, listening in Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Rob. Hey, Brian. I- you don't believe in the polls, I understand. Uh, these polls about Trump. Yep. Uh, I I, uh, I saw the same polls four years ago, man. And uh, this talk about, you know, Trump always... Well, we just lost you. Dave, Massachusetts. Hey, Dave. Doing. Good. How you doing? What's on your mind? Hey, look, well, hey, I watched you in the morning. You're great, by the way. Great book, too. Awesome Thanks, book. Dave. Hey, um, I think this election is, you know, very important. We got to get these 
Republican senators and congressmen to go out there and fight for Trump. It can't just be Trump. He can't just be a one-man show. I mean, this just can't be the Trump show 24 hours a day. These senators have to you know, get going here, and they got to fight for something, or we're going to lose more than just an election. Oh, I That's agree. Dave, you, the country's at stake. There's no question. You're seeing it in the streets. You're seeing with the taking down of monuments. You're seeing with the, uh, the fighting back uh, and the personal attacks. You see the fighting back when it comes to the economy. Instead of embracing it, they say the president gave a tax cut for the rich. No, he didn't. He cut corporate taxes where people work. Uh, rich people weren't getting rich. It, the country was growing. The regulations, they were pushing back on that. And then you're pushing back on immigration, getting control of these sanctuary cities. There's going to be a sanctuary country. There's going to be no sense of who's here and who doesn't. This whole undocumented workers, as if people didn't fill out paperwork. No, they snuck in. That's what's at, at stake. So when you look at things like Georgia, Texas, Arizona, and the president trailing, you know, there's problems. When you see North Carolina, the president's trailing, there's huge problems. In Florida, there's huge problems. But here's what the president has going for him. Biden was not ahead of this pandemic. In March, he was had a regular campaign events, one after another after another. He had a debate. It never came up. Then it finally came up, and then he said, how can you bar China from coming to this country? It's xenophobic to stop fights from China. So for him to say when the president did that, that it's xenophobic, it shows he was not ahead of the curve. And when you look at how he handled the swine flu epidemic, he was a tragic wreck. When you saw what he did with the $800 billion of stimulus package, when you examine what he did as vice president, you'll see it's a mess. When you see his Ukrainian policy, you'll see it's a disaster. And when you see that the president had the economy going where it was, you see he he has a few things going for him. The big news is... The bad news for our country is a strength of the president, and that is law and order. He's always been pro-blue while seeing this needs to be reformed. Sensitive to the black community, hear what they have to say, do something about it, but at the same time, back the men and women in blue. There's a problem in this country. Most people realize it, that cops are being told to go do something else. They've got to be defunded. They've got to become peace officers. They've got to become social workers, or they've got to quit. And chaos will reign. Let me ask you something. Joe Biden might be pro-chaos or anti-chaos. We don't know. He's not for defunding the police, but he's not against it. President Trump dead set against it, but it's happening. If you want a president that will push back on that, that has law and order and on the economy, he grades out in every single poll as superior. He's the guy. But he's got to show that September to November discipline of 2016. If he doesn't, he'll lose. If he does, he won't. And he's got to get the band back together. Steve Bannon, you got to watch yourself this time. Easy on the wild rhetoric. You can't start talking to the press about Donald Trump. Negative qualities. I believe it or not, he might have some. And then get uh, Dave Bossie. Okay, Corey Lewandowski, and here's a name you haven't heard in a while, Reince Priebus. He revamped the RNC from the state level to the national level. He knows where to tap into the states. He could be a huge help to the president. Now that he doesn't even have to worry about the RNC. That's handled. You put the band back together, and he could mount a comeback. No problem. But just Jared and Brad Parscale, not going to work. That's the way to fix it. Brian Kilmeade, Joe. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Brian Kilmeade Show. we got Corey Lewandowski warming up at the bullpen, and Jane Hampton Cook, former Bush official, presidential historian, author of several bestsellers. Her latest book that's coming out, Resilience on Parade, short stories from suffragists and women as they battle for the right to vote. It's unbelievable, but it took till 1919 before women had the right to vote. I did a special on that for what made America great. Uh, It was not a shining moment, but like all things in America, we correct it. But what women had to do to get it is astounding, maddening, I might add, too. So Jane Hampton Cook will be with us at the bottom of the hour. I don't know if you've noticed, but every statue is in jeopardy from Ulysses S. Grant to Abraham Lincoln to George Washington to Christopher Columbus, uh, all Confederate statues, the president trying to put a stop to that. But it was really disconcerting to a lot of people. And special thanks to everyone that was able to watch uh, What Made America Great on Fox News Channel last night as I went inside the White House to be able to speak to President uh, Trump, which will be the subject of what I talked to Corey Lewandowski about. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This virus is not going to go away on its own. We have to stop it. And only we can do that by working together. We're all sick and tired of staying home. But you know what? The virus is not tired of making us sick. Yeah, uh, nice pun, but we're not staying at home. Uh, CD, former CDC director Dr. Tom Frieden. Uh, the coronavirus causes 17 states to pause or reverse their reopening schedule. And the number of virus patients continues to rise. But the deaths stay flat, thankfully. How do we fight COVID-19 and let the economy recover? Number two. When you start demonizing and stereotyping all law enforcement as evil and bad, you start putting targets on their backs. You start seeing them withdraw from some areas, and that creates a powder keg that's not good for the nation. And that's where we're in, that powder keg now, exploding over the weekend. Retreat and retire. That's what law enforcement is doing as they get blamed for the nationwide civil unrest from coast to coast, as this new in vogue trend of defunding police and encouraging cities uh, sweeps the nation, a horrible combination for law-abiding Americans. We will share the grim stats. Number one. The trend is obvious. The trend is moving towards Joe Biden when Joe Biden hasn't said a word. The president has to change course here. He needs to approach the American people in a different way than he's been approaching them recently. I think Chris Christie's 100 percent right. Recalibrate and do it quick. This is what the Trump team must do if they plan on winning another election. Plus the 2016, put that band back together. Get a 2020 game plan and things to accomplish list. Right now, I've seen none and fully understand. An idol Joe Biden is winning, but it doesn't mean he will win. And joining me now is Corey Lewandowski. And Corey, are we coming up on your anniversary of being fired four years ago? It's already gone, my friend. You missed it. You didn't send a card. You didn't send flowers. <laughs> you didn't write. You missed it. It's been over a week ago. Come on. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm going to follow my. Uh, I'm going to fire my stat guy. Uh, you should do that. Yes. So. Yeah, you ran things. No one gave him a chance. He got him going, and then he he made a change. And then we went into that black hole called the Paul Manafort era. 
And then you, they came back with a new team of, of Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, uh, Bossy, and others. And from September until November, outside the Billy Bush uh, debacle, they were a very disciplined group. What's it going to take to get that discipline back, Corey? Well, you know, look, I, I think we have to continue to remind the American people of what's at stake in this election. And, you know, to oversimplify things, Brian, if you like your lifestyle, you can keep it under Donald Trump. If you don't like your lifestyle, Joe Biden will change it for you. He is part of the radical left. And, look, I'm a little bit using some tongue-in-cheek analogy as if you liked your health care, you can keep it, which is what uh, Barack Obama told us hundreds of times, and we knew that wasn't the case. The difference here is this president is a law and order president. Joe Biden has no message, and he's gone into what we call the Tahiti strategy. He might as well actually be in Tahiti because he's not campaigning anywhere. We're 18 weeks and one day from an election, and we have to make sure the American people fully understand the huge differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and what's at stake for the next four years. True. And we see the civil unrest and the the breakdown of the statues. We get it. But there's still double-digit unemployment, and now we have a, re, uh, a reemergence of the coronavirus. And what was told to me by one a big Trump supporter was, the president's got to lead. Tough to lead on a virus, right? It's not the war on terror. We can't point at al-Qaeda. It's not Saddam Hussein. How do you lead on a – it's not the economic collapse where you can look at Wall Street and say, how dare you? Where, how do you lead against a, a virus, Well, there's a couple things, Brian. You have to remember this. We chose as a government to close our economy. We didn't have an economic meltdown. The fundamental principles of our economy were strong going into the virus. But in order to save lives and protect American citizens, the president ordered that people begin to stay home. And then what he did is as he saw the virus subsiding a little bit, he gave the power to those governors and said, you need to make decisions that are best in your state. And what works in South Dakota may not work in the city of New York. Uh, what works in the city of New York may not work in places like Florida. And what we've seen is many members of the mainstream media continue to attack this president for his response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But he has pr- provided the necessary tools and equipment from the federal government, whether it was the USS Mercy or uh, ventilators that the governors were asking for. There's been no accountability at the state level. I'm not trying to pass the buck, but we look at some of these states and we look specifically at New York and we look at the way that Governor Cuomo has handled this pandemic and by no account whatsoever has he been successful. I mean, the number of deaths of people who are in nursing homes in New York is astronomical. And what we saw was the Cuomo brothers tongue in cheek, back and forth every day, joking about how great they're doing And is Andrew Cuomo going to run for president of the United States? This is a very serious issue, and governors have to step up and take responsibility and do what Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis are doing now, which is closing their states in certain regions again to protect populations. I think it's a smart, wise thing to do for them. Here's what uh, Governor Cuomo said yesterday to that. Cut 32. Look, if you listen to what the secretary said, if you listen to what the president says, what they said at the White House briefing, they're saying what they said three months ago. Uh, They're basically in denial about the problem. They don't want to tell the American people the truth. Uh, And they don't want to have any federal uh, response except supporting the states, supporting the states. So I heard that and I understood where they were. He got a lot of support from the federal government. He got a ship. He got the Javits Center. Uh, He got a lot of ventilators and many of which he he had to give away. 
Brian, governors across this country receive $660 million in just building from our Army Corps of Engineers. So whether it was in New York City where they transformed the Javits Center in Lower Manhattan to so many other locations, we were prepared. And what we heard from the healthcare experts was that COVID-19 was going to tax our hospital system to a point where people were going to die because they weren't going to get care, that there weren't enough ventilators. What we now know is ventilators were part of the problem. And once you went on a ventilator, unfortunately, most people died. What we know is people were stuck in nursing homes in New York City. They were dying because they were spreading the disease so quickly. And we did not ever occur having a shortage in hospital beds. That never occurred in New York or anywhere else. But the conversation we're having is not a conversation that's going to win it for the president. Even if he ends up right, that's not going to win it. Looking back and saying, I did this, I did this, and I did that. He's got to somehow inject some optimism in a grim situation where people feel as though to a degree they've lost control of their lives and many have lost control of their livelihoods. He's got to convince seniors that he cares. And you could sit there and say the polls are all wrong, but they can say, about eight polls say the same thing. He's losing seniors. He's losing women that he absolutely needs to be successful. He's in a dead heat in Arkansas, Georgia, losing in Florida and Arizona. Now, you know campaigns and you know the president as well as anyone. And you know this country after the experience that you've had. So having said that, what's the formula for victory in 2020? Brian, it's so simple. It's reminding the American people that before this pandemic hit, we were the hottest economy in the world because of what this president was able to do, and he can take us back there. I believe that the president should immediately implement a uh, payroll tax holiday, which would give every person who's working right now a minimum of 7.5% more money in their paychecks, and every small business and big business owner that's paying that payroll tax uh, an additional 7.5% increase in their revenue as well. We need to make sure our economy is growing. We have to make sure people are back to work. Look, we people four were months. home for 100 days. We need to generate the opportunity to stimulate our economy again like we did pre-COVID-19. And one of the ways to do that is to give people more money, to give them the opportunity to have personal responsibility with it. So you were upset. You, you looked at that Tulsa rally and you thought it was a disaster. You said you could not promise someone and not deliver And in Tulsa, you couldn't get the crowd. You got the viewers on Fox and on the stream, but you couldn't get the crowd. So that was a show. That was a five alarm fire for people that cared about Donald Trump. Here's what Mick Mulvaney told me last hour. Let's go to this. uh, The first clip from Mick. I think Chris's. I think Governor Christie's criticism there is is accurate. I would uh, I, I disagree subtly on one component of it when he said that people are moving to Joe Biden. I don't think that's true. I think they're moving away from Donald Trump. And those, that, that's an important distinction um, that I, I don't think Biden is doing much of anything. I think what you're seeing in the national polls, which Chris is right, they're not, they're not that important, but they do show general trends. Um, if the folks are, are voicing their displeasure with the way the president has, uh, has uh, handled um, COVID and the Black Lives Matter uh, riots and, and, and uprisings in the last couple of weeks, so Mick Mulvaney's clearly in the Trump camp, but he's very blunt about what he saw, as is Chris Christie, by the way. I think he's firmly in the Trump camp, but he sees a problem four months away from a loss. Brian, we're 18 weeks from an election. It's a lifetime in politics. 
But look, it's better to be having open and honest conversations yep. right now about ways to reform the system than looking back and saying, well, I, I knew there was a problem but wasn't willing to say anything. Governor Christie, Mick Mulvaney, and many others have said, you know what, we need to make sure that we've got a plan that goes forward, that, that plays into the president's strengths, that reminds people of what Joe Biden is truly about. We need to have a concise message. Is it and there look, yet? The world of COVID has changed everything. But is it we there yet? That. We acknowledge that. Is it there yet? This is what I was told by a, a veteran official yesterday, that he looks at the Trump ads on Biden and they're shrill and they mock his age. And a lot of seniors see Biden and other seniors see them. And they go, wait, is they mocking my memory? Are they mocking me? And if you're going to if you have a great right hand, why show it in the first round? Why show it in June when you're going to need it for a knockout in the fall? So do you worry about the, the campaign cadence, tone and messaging? Well, here's what I think, Brian. I think this president has done a phenomenal job defining his opponents before they've defined him, whether it was in the Republican primary in 2016 or Hillary Clinton. And I think we need to define Joe Biden. Public polling data shows that even after almost 50 years in Washington, D.C., people don't have a set opinion of Joe Biden. And there's a lot of things in his Senate record of 36 years that we need to highlight. There's a lot of things as his time as the vice president of the United States that we need to highlight and, and calling into question. His ability to cognitively put together a coherent sentence is a rational thing for someone to do if we're going to turn over to him the most powerful nation in the world. Now, look, that's not making fun of his age. People can see this on their own, and I'm not a doctor or a physician, and so I don't know. But when they say this could be you know, an early set of Alzheimer's or something, it's not early. Joe Biden is squarely in the age demographic where those things happen. I'm not saying it's happening to him. But I do think you have to call into question and, and full pause on one thing, Brian, to say 120 million Americans died because of COVID. That's a mistake, obviously. But some of the ways that he has an inability to put together a coherent sentence has to call into question his mental acuteness. And if this were Donald Trump, every Monday morning physician would be saying that he has a mental deficiency somewhere. And that would be the narrative in the media. But because it's Joe Biden, he by and large has received a pass on this issue. True. Tell me if uh, tell me if these uh, uh, these trend lines are true in your studies. Trump won whites by 18 points across two surveys in 2016. He as of late May, he's losing by five among whites without college degrees. Trump won by 37 over Hillary Clinton. He's now as a 22 point advantage. Trump won seniors by eight points in 2016. Biden's uh, winning by five. Out of what I just ran, what to what should our audience throw out? Those are all true statements, okay? But you have to look, you have to put it at the same time. So, what we're doing in those particular cases, Brian, is we're looking at Donald Trump on election day, November of 2016, compared to where he is today. And let me just put it in comparison. And I know I'm going to take you to the Wayback Machine, okay? In 1988, I know it's a long time ago, but your listeners need to understand this. The New York Times ran a poll that said that Michael Dukakis, then the governor of Massachusetts, was defeating. George H.W. Bush, the vice president of the United States, by a poll of 55 to 38 in July of 1988. This has been a historical trend by the left-wing media to say that the Democrat always has a clear advantage. We saw it through the entire 2016 campaign. And the only poll that matters is what occurs on Election Day. We still have at least three debates to go where I believe Donald Trump won the election four years ago as he debated Hillary Clinton on stage. I think he's going to do that again. And I would encourage the president, I know we've asked for it, but the Biden campaign has said no, 
getting Joe Biden on the debate stage more often and earlier because the earliest ballots are going out on September 3rd of this year. If we wait to the historical precedent of doing debates like we did last time at the end of September, tens of millions of people could have potentially voted before they ever see Joe Biden debate Donald Trump. I think that's a disservice. Let's have multiple more debates. The Biden campaign has said no because they're afraid of what Donald Trump will do. So we need right. to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. And on Election Day, we're going to see Donald Trump receive a higher percentage of the African-American vote in 2020 than he did in 2016. Corey, thanks so much. Corey Lewandowski, thank you. one 408 Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, let's go to the phones. George, listen to WSBA in Pennsylvania. Hey, George. Yes, good morning. Uh, the problem that most people are having right now is that the media, whether it be the, the written or the verbal, uh, are very unclear in what they are translating to the people. In that... We all know almost to the person what the trend is for COVID cases. The problem that I have is that there is virtually nothing said about what the trend is on the mortality. I hear you. And that is what is the final analysis. I should do and a better job digging that I'm up. Sure I should do a better job digging that up because they are not out. I always have to request them, but I never get have to request the case list. And is frustrated by this, I am certain. And the media also does not say that the purpose of masks, for example, is to protect me from you, not you from me. Exactly. Howard, listen, other- on, uh, Howard, listen on Coyle, Omaha, Nebraska. Howard. Hey, Brian. President Trump needs to run as the conservative movement, much like Reagan did, the two tidal wave wins. Not as an individual. People are shocked with the pandemic and with the anarchy, and they're realizing that President Trump is not a superhero. He can't fix everything as an individual. He needs to run as the conservative movement. That's not going to run from our past, that will back law enforcement, but be open to uh, healing racial strife. Uh, that, that would be a good way to handle it. Uh, run as Somebody who is a conservative to handle all things from the conservative point of view rather than a play-by-play on what issue pops up. All right, Howard, I'll take that. Hopefully the president will, too. Back in a moment. News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. People tend to think of that figure as being servile, but if you uh, second look, you will see something different perhaps. That man is not kneeling on two knees with his head bowed. He is in the act of getting up, and his head is up, not bowed, 
because he's looking forward to a, a future of freedom. People have said, well, he's chained to Mr. Lincoln. Closer look, you will see that while there's a shackle on his right hand, he's holding the end of a broken chain, which means he has taken his freedom. He now realizes he's free. So I say, leave it, let it stand. So that was Marsha Cole. Uh, the, the, she was a reenactor, but she's also a historian. And she's standing in front of the Lincoln statue uh, in Washington, D.C., and standing below him, standing up below him, is an African-American man, really existed back then, modeled off a man that was, uh, that was a fugitive slave who became a free slave after the Civil War, fist clenched, standing up because he earned his freedom. The fact that Abraham Lincoln stood over him and he was in shackles says that's an image we don't want. If you looked at what the intent was from from the designer and the dedication by Frederick Douglass in, in the 18, 1876, it was a representative of that day that I think should stay. It's still under attack. Jane Hampton Cook joins us right now. She knows the statue well. She's the author of a brand new book, Resilience on Parade, short stories from suffragists and women's battle for the vote. Uh, Jane, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you today. We're in a big war on uh, history now. Uh, Can you believe this? I mean, what was your reaction as you see chains going around the neck of Andrew Jackson, spray painting and the taking down of George Washington, blood on his hands, Columbus, and, and then they're going after Lincoln now? Yeah, it's it's really accelerated very quickly, and it's been heartbreaking. I mean, when you know, I've studied so much about American history. You've written books, I've written books, and we have. There's just this all or nothing mentality about history, and that's really not the way we should be approaching our history. We should take strength from the good things and acknowledge the bad things because we all live in freedom today, and um, this is just madness from a mob. Well, it, it is. And how do you feel about society making progress and saying that's no longer the image I want up? Well, you know, I can understand some of that. You know, I can certainly say, hey, you know, that's not the way we are today. Um, but it was that transition. It was that moment that freedom came. And I have a book um, in my book. I talk about several um, Americans who lived loudly for liberty. And one of those was Ida B. Wells Barnett. She was a slave, born into slavery, became free, got educated, was a journalist. And she talked about the great flower of the 1800s was the abolishment of slavery and that it it put the Declaration of Independence into practice. And it, it was about freedom. And I think that statue represents that coming into freedom. And it's a, you know, school children visit that statue and they learn. They learn the good and the bad. I, and they, they um, can have a hopeful message from that statue. You know, the president said to me on Monday, he's like, let's add, add more statues. I mean, you want more Martin Luther King, more Frederick Douglass, more Booker T. Washington, other great African-Americans uh, in our past. Uh, and add to it. I mean, Frederick Douglass wrote an incredible speech in dedicating that statue. Ulysses S. Grant was president, not much of a speaker. Frederick Douglass writes this great speech. Maybe that speech, you know, maybe a portion of that speech is in his hand and the statue stands next to him because that would help round out the story. 
Absolutely. And I, I do think you're right. I think there's a great opportunity here to champion the African-Americans that lived during the founding of our nation, like Phyllis Wheatley, Peter Salem, and show how they lived loudly for liberty despite the slavery that they experienced um, and, and how um, champions for freedom like Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and Sojourner Truth and tell their stories alongside um, the great that we that we already know about, and I think that's a I think that's a really important way to show our identity as a free people and as becoming more free as our nation's history has progressed. So Jane Hampton Cook, you may remember, she was on here with the burning of the White House, James and Dolly Madison, and the War of eighteen twelve. Worked for President Bush as a webmaster for five years, and Jane has got a brand new book out, and she's one of the stars of one of our uh, one of our brand new. Um, uh, editions of What Made America Great, looking at women's suffrage, uh, the women's quest for the right to vote. I had no idea it was this tough that, that women went to prison just for the right that you should have gotten uh, in 1789, uh, 1783, I should say. Uh, Jane, tell me about this book and what you discovered about women and what they sacrificed just for this right. Well, you know, it strikes me just how long the history is. I start with Abigail Adams in 1776, and she asked her husband, John Adams, to remember the ladies, and that sparked a debate with him and another gentleman on on that very issue of voting rights. And then, but what just, what strikes me is that these women really believe that the Declaration of Independence applied to them in 1848. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton issued the Declaration of Sentiments, which added the word female to all men and women are created equal. And that they, they, they toughed it out. You know, some of them never saw uh, voting rights in their lifetime, but they were, they were so committed to the cause and the cur- courage of the women that did go to jail in the you know, 1917 time period. Um, was just the creativity that they used for problem solving, all of those qualities that we can still relate to today, courage, perseverance, resilience. Those are things that we need to talk about because they can inspire us today as we learn about what happened in the past. So let me ask them, uh, when you saw this struggle, it must have been maddening for you, how hard women had to write for something they should have been born with. It was it was a struggle, and I was struck with it, and I, I thought um, – you know, I was impressed with the the things that drove them to it. And, you know, Susan B. Anthony realized that men, she was a teacher, and that her male teacher counterparts were making three times more than she was. And that's what motivated her to, um, to call for women's voting rights. And yet there were victories along the way. I mean, Wyoming gave women the right to vote really early on. Um, in the 1870s, and other Western states followed suit. And it was interesting to me, too, how very often it was politics that prevented women from getting the right to vote. Or politics, uh, women had the right to vote if they owned land in New Jersey from 1776 until 1808. And the reason that they lost it was party politics, because the Democrat-Republican Party didn't like the fact that the women were voting for the Federalists. They took the right to vote away from him. And that was that was all about politics. And that's what really struck me the most, I think, was how much that sometimes got in the way of doing the right thing. So when you, you know, you point out and we went and visited the prison where women were held yeah. because they would not give in and they would not uh, demonstrate because they were relentless in their push to uh, to get the right to vote. Does that make you understand some of this unrest better than many? 
You know, it does, because uh, I do understand, um, you know, when you have a cause for justice and it, they peacefully protested, these women did, they protested President Woodrow Wilson, they held signs, they were called silent sentinels because they didn't say anything. They simply held a sign in front of the White House. And after a while, um, they got arrested for it, um, even though they weren't doing anything illegal. But it does, it shows a contrast. It shows a contrast for a model that they demonstrated of peaceful protest. Um, and also they had a very tangible goal. Their goal was a constitutional amendment that would give all women the right to vote in all states. And so that's what I, uh, that's where I, that's what's hard to see right now is what is the tangible goal? And, um, but I think that's uh, something to look at them and say, okay, they had a tangible goal and they stuck to that. And that's, that's what they worked for. And I'm afraid some of those tangible goals, like police reform and things like that are getting a little lost when all these statues of, you know, abolitionists are coming down. And you burn down cities and just steal stuff. Uh, Here's what Andrew Cuomo said about the demonstrations. People are making a statement uh, about equality, about community, uh, to be against racism, against slavery. Uh, I think those are good statements. And uh, it depends, you know, can you overdo it? Of course you can. But uh, in New York, I don't think we've overdone it. And I think that I think it's a healthy expression of people saying, let's get some priorities here and let's remember the sin and mistake that these this nation made and let's not celebrate it. Are you kidding? They didn't overdo it in New York? You know how much damage was done in New York? I mean, what planet is he on? Yeah, he's um, he's on planet politics. Um, he, he, you know, it's not healthy to have to vandalize buildings and damage other people's businesses and property. That that dwarfs in it. it it takes away any momentum that was there um, from people who were really peacefully protesting. And it's, it's very damaging um, to our society. And that, you know, George Washington in 1776, some of his soldiers tore down a statue of King George the third and he beheaded it. Um, and I always thought that was kind of a funny ha ha thing in hindsight. He didn't like that. The very next day he issued an, an order and he said, I understand your zeal. But this is not a riot. I will not have disorder. And so he understood the difference um, in keeping order and going things, going about things in a lawful way versus turning things over into a riot. Right. So even and, back then. And also they melted, they melted that king's statue down they and made did. bullets. They did. Right. They did. They made practical use of it. Yeah, absolutely. So Jane Hampton Cook, congratulations on Resilience on Parade. Short stories from suffragists and women's battle for the vote. Uh, vote. And you can see Jane uh, on our special about women's suffrage in our huge series, What Made America Great. You were brilliant in it. Uh, Jane, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And thanks for, for what make, made America great. You got it. That, Jane, thank you. We'll have you definitely on all these episodes because you're an esteemed historian. one 408 When we come back, we'll get your calls and also find out if you need to know more. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. We'll uh, be taking some calls in just a moment. I do want to tell you that uh, Fox Nation has an expanded look 
at uh, our tour of the White House, and with includes an interest uh, an interview with the president, two part series on Sam Houston, his life is an incredible trajectory in politics and in the military exploits, including the Texas fight for freedom, and then women's suffrage. If uh, you're a female and you think you know what it was like for your uh, predecessors, man, it's a lot tougher than I even imagined. We go through it. Uh, in Washington and what they want for the right that should have had the day we became a country. Uh, and then we'll take some of your phone calls. But first, let's see if there's more to know. More to know. The answer is yes. Hey, the indigenous activists, meaning like American Indian activists, call on Governor Hickenlooper, who wants to be Senator Hickenlooper, to drop out of Colorado's race over many red face photos. A group of indigenous women and their allies issued a public letter Saturday urging Hickenlooper to withdraw from the state's Democratic Senate primary over his involvement in an event in which he participants, he had the participants uh, dressed in Native American garb. The sort of red-faced resi- re- uh, racism has no place in our politics, tweeted journalist Julian Brave no, uh, Noise Cat. The letter cites multiple uh, appearances by Hickenlooper at the one-shot antelope hunt in Wyoming, an event which participants compete to see who can uh, kill an antelope, I guess. In one shot, the winner's dress is imitation headdress, while the loser's dress in so-called squaws. Governor Hickenlooper displayed an unacceptable lack of judgment in choosing to participate in the event. Should this be a disqualifier? Unbelievable. To me, I don't know. Uh, you had five years ago, it was 10 years ago, it was okay to do that for Halloween or for anything else. He didn't make the rules. I don't know why you should pay the price for that. And by the way, there still is the Washington Redskins. Next. Critics uh, call for the federal income tax signed by Woodrow Wilson to be canceled. Uh, and Princeton and his name scrubbed from Princeton. Princeton University's decision to remove Woodrow Wilson's name from his public policy school because of its racist views sparked a backlash from conservatives who are now calling for the federal income tax that he signed into law to be repealed. Woodrow Wilson, a uh, bit of a racist. Meanwhile, an alum of the New Jersey-based Ivy League school slammed the university president, Christopher Ice Gruber, for giving in to the woke leftist. Bobby Jindal, a Republican former governor of Louisiana, tweeted, Now that Princeton is canceling Woodrow Wilson, can we now get our money back in terms of an income tax? In 1913, Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law, creating the National Central Bank. He was our president during World War I. He had the League of Nations idea. He also resegregated civil service. So that gets people angry, understandable. But that was then. I thought we were moving on and growing from it. He had enough that he accomplished academically and politically to become president, lead us through World War I. I thought that would be enough. Next. Mississippi lawmakers vote to remove the Confederate battle emblem from its flag. The vote was overwhelming, 91-23 on Sunday afternoon and 37-14 to 14, uh, later in the day. Governor Tate Reeves said he will sign the bill. Goodbye, uh, stars and bars. Next. This is maddening. California Democrats passed a resolution calling for the end of the John Wayne Airport. They want it renamed. It's in Orange County. It's a small airport. If you can avoid uh, LAX, everyone goes there. But now John Wayne, who was the biggest name there, who went to USC, was starring football player there and a sports writer, and became one of this, the generation's greatest actors. They want to get rid of it uh, because they don't like some things he said during his life. The resolution, first reported by the L.A. Times, calls on the Orange County Board of Supervisors to reverse the 1979 decision to rename it after uh, the man we call the Duke. And cites remarks she made in 1971 with an interview with Playboy when he said, quote, 
I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. So that is a terrible statement. But his body of work for his life was extremely patriotic. Raised a lot of money for federal causes, for military causes. A great symbol of a great generation. Could that statement possibly be a qualifier? Can anyone live up to the postmortem height? Next, the Justice Department charges four over an attempt to topple Andrew Jackson's statue in D.C. Their faces were apparent. It's about time. Next, players for the Portland Thorns and North Carolina Cougars all knelt during the National Anthem Saturday when the NWSL League opened up their Challenge Cup tournament. The player coaches wore Black Lives Matter t-shirts and warm-ups. Uh, they'll be doing that for the national team, too. Never deal during, kneel during the National Anthem for the national team. They choose to do it there. I imagine every team's going to be doing it. Uh, one player did stand. I did not get her name. And here's the most staggering news of the day. Millennials throw out 633 meals a year because they don't know how to reheat leftovers. Those who took part in the poll said they would rather bin food, uh, rather bin food than reheat it, admitting good food is going to waste. The poll conducted by cookware brand Pyrex found millennials 18 to 34 wasted more than three times as much as people age 34 to infinity. They throw out the equivalent of 186 plates. How hard is it to be able to work a microwave? You're not even asking to preheat an oven. Unbelievable. Millennials, you got to start defending yourself. You don't vote, you complain, you riot, you don't work, you have all these rules, and you can't reheat food. Are you being included in this demographic? But you are, Eric. It's not my fault. I am not. You're in it. That's Eric talking through a mask because he's responsible and a real man. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.